trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, this program exists as a friendly reminder that it's impossible to get a clear understanding of what's going on in the world without accounting for the fact that very powerful people within your own society are actively working very hard to manipulate your understanding in their favor. By the way, I want to give credit to Caitlin Johnstone for that excellent observation, but she's absolutely right. There's a lot of manipulation going on, and guess what? I am here not so much to tell you, well, here's what you should think instead, but to offer you an alternative and even more importantly, to encourage you to strengthen your own ability to think clearly and independently, to make yourself difficult to manipulate. In fact, to make yourself impossible to play as a chess piece on their chessboard. So if you're into that kind of stuff, then I would say, please walk with me. Let's let's discuss. We have a lot of great stuff to cover today. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible, too. If you will direct your attention to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you'll find links to hslammo.com, monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, garagedoorpros.com, garagedoorproservices.com, rather. And if you're into the shooting sports particularly if you are into guns and gear, you'll find that I have a sponsor on my website, Borelli, that uh, they offer some really great daily deals. And as an affiliate for them now, um, I can uh, I can give you a, cl- a link you can click on to check out the daily deal, and uh, you might just find something that you really like. So with that said, let's dive right in. You know, as much as we may wish for it, there's just no place for anyone to safely sit out the struggle for our personal liberty. I know for a time there, I believed, well, you know, if I just hunker down or if I just, if I leave society and go live on a mountainside somewhere, raising sheep and goats and, you know, tending to whittling or whatever, you know, society can just go to hell in a handbasket and it can do it without me. I don't think that's possible. I don't think that there is any place you can go in this world, with the exception of maybe Antarctica, but even there, you know, you're going to, you're still going to run into trouble, like how to feed yourself. There's nowhere to hide from the battle that is going on around us. And the battle, if I could sum it up in one question, is will man be free? Okay, it's a question that still hangs very much in the balance. And and I don't know if you've ever thought about uh, what hill will I be standing bravely on and, you know, bravely fighting for my freedom. I've definitely thought about that. I know a lot of people who have, have thought about that. And I know a lot of people who are reluctantly realizing that as much as they thought they could avoid it, There is no place to hide at this point. So are we going to have our own little Paul Revere moment? Well, I want you to consider an essay by Brad A. Girton, Our Own Little Hills. I like how he puts this. Brad Girton says, I remember hearing the story about Paul Revere when I was a kid. I thought it was a fun, cool story about some guy riding through the cobblestone and dirt streets of 1775 Boston on his horse, yelling at the top of his lungs, The British are coming! The British are coming! However, that story seemed ancient to me from a long time ago that I could only barely comprehend. Now, he says, don't get me wrong. I understood it was part of America's history and a significant moment in the beginning of our revolution. But he says the importance of that moment and what transpired afterward didn't fully hit home. 
only after experiencing life as an adult, going through trials and tribulations, winning and losing, only then was I able to grasp the pure panic that Paul Revere must have felt as he sped through the town and the sheer terror those men must have felt as they grabbed their boots and reached for their guns. It's nothing short of awe-inspiring when one understands the bravery of those men and women to face the moment to fight for what they believed in. Now, he says, as my interest in history grew as a young adult, I soon learned that everything I heard about as a kid about Paul Revere's famous ride wasn't totally accurate. First of all, Paul Revere wasn't alone. It's believed he was initially joined by two other riders, William Dawes and Samuel Prescott, spreading the word on that April evening in 1775. Secondly, he and his companions were most definitely not screaming out loud that the British are coming. It was much more clandestine than that. You see, the British were already there, hiding in the countryside. Paul, William, and Samuel risked capture and their lives as they spread the word. Now, this makes the story so much more compelling, with the panic and terror ratcheted up that much more. Paul Revere's famous ride wasn't just a mad dash to warn the town folk of an impending force. It was a secretive mission in the midst of British soldiers and loyalists. Thanks to the protected life of leisure most Americans enjoy today, it seems unfathomable now that the fight for independence was fought in the very farms, fields, streets, yards, alleyways, and hills surrounding the colonials' homes. It's said that about 20,000, at least 20,000 colonists were killed during the Revolutionary War. How many families destroyed? How many homes torched, crops burned, personal effects taken? The questions are endless, as was the devastation and despair. The ultimate price that so many men and women paid with their own blood, sweat, and tears in the belief that there was something better to form a more perfect union, a union that they themselves would never experience. How does one even begin to repay that favor? He says, I once naively believed that the fight for freedom our patriots provided for us, the American dream was over. That we won our independence and now we'll always be protected from tyranny and oppression thanks to our Constitution. And that we'll always have the freedoms most people around the world can only dream of thanks to the Bill of Rights. But he says, I was so naive. As I became more and more interested in American politics and in turn political history, the more I became acutely aware that the fight for our freedoms is never over. It may be on the back burner for a while, simmering quietly, but it never goes away. Eventually, that pot on the back burner boils over if you're not paying enough attention to it. Looking at the current American political landscape today is startling, to say the least. Now, he says, I wasn't alive during the McCarthy years or the 1950s, nor did I personally witness Socialist President FDR, who didn't hide his affection for Italian fascist dictator Mussolini in office either. But he says, I'd be willing to bet that what we're seeing from the current administration running this country is far scarier and more threatening to freedom-loving American citizens today than whatever we've seen in the past. He says, we're now a country controlled by elite, power-hungry oligarchs who are no more interested in free elections than they are in providing the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They have infiltrated all facets of society, law, including judges and prosecutors, education, business, military, medicine, banking, entertainment, media, and government. Instead of debate, today's left resorts to shame, smears, and censorship. And as time goes by, they keep upping the ante, which in turn further erodes our individual rights. Now this summer, Donald Trump, a former president, had his home raided by armed FBI agents. 
It was asked afterward that if a former U.S. president could have his home raided, how long will it be until this administration unleashes them, meaning the FBI, onto the American public? Well, now we know the answer. Recently, a father of seven also had his home raided by armed FBI agents and was subsequently arrested. And what was his crime? Did he murder somebody? Did he fire or bomb a building, a church, or a police station or government building? No. Did he desecrate government property? No. Nothing even remotely close. He simply shoved away a raving lunatic who was screaming at and harassing his child, a reaction most fathers would perform in the same situation. Now, please explain to me how that warrants an armed raid by FBI agents. Is this really where we are as a country? It's hard to fathom. And unfortunately, his only crime was that he wasn't in lockstep with the state's mandated narrative. Think about that for a minute. This man's home was raided as the result of a thought crime. It doesn't get more Orwellian than that. Stalin and Hitler would only be so amused by this. With the constant demeaning verbal attacks from Biden's administration, the physical attacks from leftist-backed mobs like Antifa and BLM, and now the unleashed, politi- uh, the unleashed police force from our Justice Department, it appears that informed debate and compromise are no longer viable options. Many years from now, history books will refer to a 21st century Paul Revere moment. If necessary, against a hostile government targeting its citizenry, will we have that same bravery to protect our own little hills, to preserve the very freedom so men, so many men and women fought for? Brad Gurton says, I hope so. And I don't, I don't know if he is uh, unaware of or, or maybe just doesn't know some of the details, but we had a Paul Revere moment a little over eight years ago in Bunkerville, Nevada. And look, I'm not suggesting that, uh, well, we ought to start writing the history books right now about uh, how important that was. But I know that uh, when I was there and I was there for there was two days that I went down the Thursday before and then the actual Saturday of the standoff there in Bunkerville. You could feel I mean, you could feel in the air this incredible sense of anticipation. Something extremely important was about to happen. And of course, the, the kicker is, would it be good? Would it be something good or would it be something bad? It seemed bad at the time, or at least the potential for you know bloodshed was very, very real. But in the end, it turned out to be something remarkable and possibly the single most important act of armed rebellion and defense of uh, the citizenry against an out-of-control government since the Civil War. Just a little something to think about. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And thank you so much for choosing to take a listen. I know there are just, there are millions of voices out there offering thoughts and, uh, you know, observations on the passing scene. I don't know that I'm offering anything special, but I am doing my very best to find truth and light that will help you better understand the situation we are in, as well as uh, point you towards uh, thinking as clearly and independently about our situation as possible. And that's not always easy. And by the way, that means if you want to disagree with me, that's totally okay. I present this information with no suggestion that you have to believe this or you're some big dummy. Nope. It's it's there for you to do with as you see fit. And if you say, no, I don't don't believe a, a word of it, that's okay. See, my worldview does not depend on you agreeing with me. I know. Shocking, right? 
but that's how it is. All I ask is if you do find something of value, maybe tell a friend, maybe, uh, you know, share a link and, and let them uh, check this out for themselves. The, you know, the show comes in podcast form. It's easy enough to find. Or you can go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com and subscribe to the RSS feed there. And every time a new episode drops, you'll know. So like it or not, our entire society has been enrolled in a sort of sensitivity training. I know. (laughs) That's part of being woke, though. Margaret Brownlee spells out who it was who signed us up, why they're doing it, and she says to our self-appointed facilitators, please, don't ask my pronoun. Margaret Brownlee says, pronoun mania has taken over the country, so much so that my grandchildren tell me the first order of business at the start of a new semester is for everyone to proclaim their pronouns. Now, something similar happened to me when I signed up to attend a writer's conference. Margaret says, I couldn't believe that a professional organization expected me to walk around wearing a name tag declaring that I was a she. And she says, while some may think that this obsession with pronouns comes from the best of intentions, she says, it's much ado about nothing. I can talk to someone for hours without using a pronoun other than the second person, you. Yet the human rights campaign puts such stock in the matter that it advises us to introduce ourselves by name and pronoun. Their website asks how we would feel if a coworker, a family member, a doctor, or a friend routinely called us by the wrong pronoun. Well, that's a question that's hard to answer as I've never been addressed by a pronoun, at least not to my face. People refer to me by name, and I'm willing to bet that's how it is for most of us. All this time and effort given to pronouns is supposedly for inclusion purposes, but Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist, disagrees. In his article, when asked, what are your pronouns, don't answer. He wrote that pronouns serve as an implicit endorsement of gender ideology. Now, what that means is that those of us who believe that gender is fixed at birth and that there are only two are being forced to accept and endorse something we do not believe in. It seems the more we accept this craziness, the more craziness we release. A family member has a Therian co-worker who wants to be greeted each morning with meow. There are at least 14 other kins, which include people who identify as animals, machines, and elves. How much longer before we will be required to introduce ourselves not only by pronouns, but also by species? And when does this obsession with pronouns become intrusive? Why aren't the people pushing this agenda worried about the person who's not ready to come out? Or the young student who's going through feelings of identity uncertainty? Would sharing preferred pronouns make him or her feel more included or only add to the stress? People shouldn't be forced to reveal things about themselves that they're not ready to share, just as none of us should be forced or bullied into accepting that which we don't believe. Pretty good stuff, huh? Margaret Brownlee says, Pronouns aren't the only words under attack. Some professionals have been told in the name of inclusion to stop addressing customers or clients with sir or ma'am. Heaven help us if we should slip and say, ladies and gentlemen. Why do we have to throw common courtesy out the window just to please a few? That's the least of it. Even the words mother and father are now under attack. The Biden administration replaced the word mother for birthing parent in the fiscal year budget, and the National Education Association, or NEA, considered a similar resolution. Now, fortunately, the proposal went nowhere, But the very fact that an organization that represents nearly 3 million teachers contemplated such a thing is worrisome. To refer to mothers by their reproductive capacity is to dehumanize them, and the worst possible insult to any woman who has devoted her life to loving and nurturing a child. 
The word mommy or the like is the first word out of just about every human mouth which speaks to the strong emotional bond between mother and child. Margaret Brownlee says women have had to fight long and hard to gain certain rights. Now it looks like we're going to have to fight for the basic right to be called mother. And mothers aren't the only ones under attack. The House of Representatives has done away with any language that does not honor and include all gender identities. So to that end, they banned words like father, sister, brother, and daughter. Well, why not go a step further and erase such non-inclusive words as lesbian or trans? And how is the phrase LGBTQ inclusive? I'm sure the NEA and our politicians could come up with something as insulting to our pride friends as birthing persons is to mother. In the so-called pursuit of inclusion, workers and students across the country are required to attend sensitivity training. Now, we're told this is geared to building a culture of dignity, respect, and tolerance. It sounds great, but apparently sensitivity works only one way. Certainly, the participants in a recent Pride Parade weren't thinking of sensitivity or respect when they romped naked and made sexual gestures in front of small children. Margaret Brownlee says, personally, I take offense when asked my pronoun. I don't identify as a woman. She says, I am a woman, just as I'm a wife and mother. That's the reality of it. To ask me to ask my pronoun, she says, is to suggest otherwise. And just because a man identifies as a woman or vice versa doesn't make it so. And gender fraud is a real problem. Male prisoners in some states have only to declare themselves women to be housed in female prisons. No gender reassignment surgery required. And it's no surprise this has resulted in female prisoners being raped or made pregnant. Here we have yet another misguided attempt to show the LGBTQ community sensitivity and respect. In return, women's lives are put in danger. So by all means, let's respect people regardless of identities, but not at the price of turning our streets into freak shows, our prisons into orgies, and our language into meaningless, in some cases, insulting words. Margaret Brownlee says, as for pronouns, if you feel the need to tell me yours and you're comfortable doing so, fine. I can respect your pronoun preferences, even though we don't share ideologies. But she says, just don't insult me by asking mine. I, that strikes me as a very reasonable approach, by the way, to the way that she says that. You know, now, some people would say, well, if she takes offense, you know, you choose to take offense. And, and yes, yes, you, you can choose to take offense. But just like the person who does mask enforcement, I, I recently I, I had to go to the emergency room a couple weeks ago. And, of course, you know, there's the mask person here. Have a mask. Um, there was a time where I would have said, I won't wear that stupid thing. I didn't wear that stupid thing, to be clear. But when they handed me the mask, I just said, thank you. And it went into my pocket. And I have it as a souvenir of the day I didn't wear a mask, you know, when I was, you know, in the hospital. Same thing. Took my daughter to go see the dentist the other day. And, you know, masks required for you to enter this building. You know, you walk in, first thing they do, well, here's a mask. All right, thank you. So what I'm saying is you can still stand for your rights without confronting people. Some people, you know, it's just in their nature. Well, I'm going to tell them exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing so that they can understand. I mean, do what feels right to you. But I feel like I accomplish more by not getting confrontational with them and not turning it into a scene. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe it will to some people, maybe not so much to others. I just calmly go about my business, and um, so far nobody, and I mean nobody, has, has given me a second glance or so much as suggested, Sir, sir, put on your, uh, uh, sir, uh, what is it, if that's your pronoun, would you? <laughs> 
And if somebody asked me my pronouns, I, I probably would tell them, you know, I don't uh, subscribe to that particular ideology. But my point is you can still stand your ground. You don't have to be combative in order to do it. Okay, there's enough anger out there. There's, there's enough conflict. You can stand for what you believe in and you can stand for what is true and what is right without bringing more anger into the situation. That's not the same thing as just rolling over. Oh, my pronouns are he, him. (laughs) And if somebody really presses me, I mean really presses me, well, you need to fill out the form. We need your pronouns. I find that the pronouns awake and concerned seem to send a certain message. Maybe give them a try. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And a quick shout out here to garagedoorproservices.com. This is a local company to southwestern Utah, serving St. George, Cedar City, also Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona, featuring garage doors made in America. And yes, they install, they service, and they repair garage doors with quick response and a much faster lead time than other companies can give you. By the way, this includes insulated garage doors. Kind of important, especially in those uh, super warm climates like Mesquite, Nevada, like St. George, and so forth. Uh, by the way, they do commercial service as well as residential. Please check out their website, garagedoorproservices.com. If you have need of what they are, are offering, please let them know that uh, you checked them out because I introduced you to them. It helps that they know that their message is reaching your ears. So I'm going to take this in a little bit different direction, and, I, and I'm going to tell you right now, this might make some people feel a little bit uncomfortable, but it was such an interesting essay that I found that I wanted to share this with you, if, if nothing else, just as, as kind of a thought starter and, and something to contemplate. So it starts with a question, is our world built on relationships that are spiritually defective? I'll go into some more detail as to what that means, but I've got this essay here from Martin Geddes from his uh, Substack. It's titled, A Covenant Society, Not a Contract One. And he starts with the question, does a monarch have a divine right to rule over you? No matter where you stand on the question, the framing is that there is godly and ungodly power and authority. So when a British king or queen is installed, they agree to serve as both head of state and the established church. We don't hire the person into a role the same way we get a plumber to fix a leaking pipe. The oath of lifetime service to the monarch's subjects places us all under the same deity in theory. So he says, this last week I have, with help, been offered an insight that I feel is life-changing. It's one of those, once you see it, you cannot unsee it things. The power of the insight comes from its deep nature, a category error. What that means is, you are looking at a situation through the wrong paradigm until you widen your conceptual universe, you'll never resolve the problems you have. Now he says, I've been through this before in telecoms, networks don't work, do work rather, and it is a powerful and isolating place of raised understanding. And here's the essential insight that he's talking about. The Babylonian debt slave society we inhabit is based on contracts, whereas the one we want to inhabit as a foundation of covenants. Becoming conscious of the current default and naming the better alternative has great power. Contracts are the pervasive norm in our world. Covenants are rarely discussed. 
And of course, this benefits those who have ruled over us. The path to freedom in mind, body, and spirit demands that we grasp both that we both grasp the difference and act differently as a result. Now, the problem with contracts is not only a case of having a legal doppelganger as the straw man persona, which fraudulently removes our birthrights. All of our relationships are infected with contracts, which confuse us as to their and our real nature. The most important one is that of marriage, although the enslaving idea spreads everywhere with the notion of a social contract. By their nature, contracts attempt to take as much as possible while giving as little as possible and require lawyers and judges. That is an unhealthy, unhelpful way to be together. What's the difference between a contract and a covenant, Covenant, he asks? Well, he says, I'm not a theologian, so please excuse the roughness of this initial attempt to answer. A contract is a constraining agreement between two or more parties. It can be used for good or evil, as it is just a tool like a hammer or a gun. Contracts are loveless by default and focus on what can go wrong. They have to be renegotiated to accommodate changed circumstances. A covenant, on the other hand, is an agreement to act in a holy manner and to follow the way of the narrow path. You align not to each other, but to the highest. It is freeing since you can discount the desire for unholy outcomes, and hence it engenders lasting trust. A covenant raises what can go right and is flexibly loving by design. So the easiest way to understand the difference between the two, uh, at least the practical difference, is with marriage. In a traditional common law situation, if a man and woman lived together and were having sex, then that counted as being married under covenant. Producing children in a committed relationship is a sacred bond. The ultimate authority governing the marriage is godly. The primary commitment is not to each other, but to the same mutual or ultimate ends, rather, of furthering the family. So they stay together not just through mutual affection, but because they are spiritually assigned to the same higher goal which is create and raise the family. But what we've done instead, Martin Getty says, is we have substituted the state for the sacred. And so we, have, we issue official breeding licenses where you track the lineage of any debt slaves produced. The couple promises to register any births with the tax farmer, and what counts as marriage is defined by administrative processes under contract. A tax deduction is the metric of marriage in law. In a contractual marriage, the parties may or may not have any affection for each other. In aristocratic or arranged marriages, that is understood. It's a business deal between families. How close or far apart they are personally is irrelevant to whether they fulfill their roles in the human breeding scheme. Now, some people have covenant marriages but are pressured by normal society to become a respectable and get an official contract. And he says this is insane once you see clearly. It takes a true holy union and defiles it with a business agreement. How many hours working in the corporate world will be exchanged for how many dinners and orgasms? Dissatisfaction is built in as both parties unconsciously strive to get the best deal. If one party becomes more spiritually alive and aware of the tension, then the couple may grow apart. That's because they're now at different levels of consciousness, not because anyone has done anything wrong. A covenant marriage can be annulled if one of the parties was not qualified to get married. They divorce, or they can divorce, only because of abandonment of seeking of the highest way, like becoming a Satanist or a murderer. That's a good reason to part. But the common pursuit of the Almighty means they should, over time, grow together spiritually as they seek the highest purpose 
together. Closeness is built in, but it is the ultimate threesome with the godly. It is intrinsically generous. For instance, sex celebrates the common union with the highest purpose, so you should have as much as possible. It's not a grudging squish offered occasionally to keep the contract going with some reluctant laundry afterwards. The extent to which a contract and covenant can coexist is an interesting question. And Martin Getty says, I can think of people in my life who have a covenant relationship and no contract. Others who have a contract and definitely no covenant, as well as the confused who really don't understand the question and are struggling with the result. Or struggling as a result, rather. A population that's spiritually dead and a pair bonded into the mini-psychosis of a contract marriage is easily manipulated and shorn of its assets via mass psychosis. Elderly spinsters who live together should have inheritance rights, even if they cannot marry. They owe the state nothing when one dies. They can be in covenant without a contract endorsed by the state. Gay marriage is meaningless. You can contract anything you like anyway, and the covenant is likely irrelevant. The involvement of tax authorities in marriage is a nonsense if you believe the parties to be free and independent human beings. It only makes sense if we are enslaved and seen as chattel by the ruling class. So he says, I think you get the hint about our predicament. Once you see the category error, it puts into perspective a lot of the crashes and chaos in your own life as well as those around you. People everywhere have marriages where they are aligned in mind and body, but not in spirit. The dotted line to sign upon has displaced the divine, and the consequences are pervasive and problematic. In a contract, in a contract marriage, rather, the complaint is, I thought you loved me. Whereas in a covenant one, it is, I thought you loved the same God. Now, the difference seems minor, but it's everything. How can you divorce your deity if you are a person of faith? So we've collectively consented to have a three-way with the tax man, and that's gone very wrong. Now imagine the consequence of all our governments for the last hundred years being proven to be the result of election and voter fraud. Every piece of legislation on marriage is repealed, and the state authority of each licensed performer of vow ceremonies is revoked. If fraud vitiates absolutely everything, then those contracts no longer have legal force since they were personas being joined, not man and woman. Would we regard the offspring of those unions to be bastards and unholy? Martin Getty says, I think not. It's because we understand that humans were lively striving for covenants, but were deceived into slave bond contracts. Contracts have become normal in the same way that wearing a face covering became normal for a while. There's nothing normal at all in humans of infinite worth abandoning their, their individuality to gain the approval of a corporation or the state. He says, I can see how the legal face covering is the basis for our society, forcing people to act as products so we can be commoditized and traded under contract. This all seemed to be acceptable right up until the moment you know and the name of what it really was, uh, name of what it was we really wanted all along, the covenant. Then the invisible covering comes off. Pretty interesting stuff, huh? I mean, look, you you may or may not agree. I just thought it was it was fascinating because I don't know, I see a lot of truth in what he's saying. And I see a lot of people who who have what they would count as a covenant marriage who nonetheless look to the state or look to the legal contract aspects to decide whether or not to keep that relationship going. You ought to check out the essay. It's linked in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And thanks once again for uh, for uh, for tuning in, for starters. And those who have subscribed, I appreciate you signing up for either my show notes or the new feature that I am offering called Hide in Plain Sight. Yes, it's a play on words. Yes, it's probably too clever by half. But the idea behind Hide in Plain Sight is there's a lot of common sense and sometimes just good distilled wisdom that's out there. It's right under our noses, but... You just wouldn't notice it unless somebody pointed it out. Kind of like the uh, Martin Gettys article I shared in the last segment about a covenant society rather than a contract society. Few of us ever think about the difference until it's pointed out to us, and then it's like, oh, oh. Then you start to see it everywhere you go. So I would encourage you, if you if you want to check it out, go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. You'll find uh, lots of resources for wrong thinkers, ways to sharpen your thinking skills to make you much more difficult to deceive or to manipulate. So just a couple quick things I want to touch on here briefly. Uh, one is, uh, you remember how we were commanded to follow the science when it was being used to lock down our, our lives and our livelihoods? You remember that? I'm sure you do. Come on. Who can forget that uh, we were told, you know, in fact, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, I am the science. He just needed the Judge Dredd outfit to, to really make that thing stick. But uh, I, I found this uh, article from Dr. Robert Malone, who are now the United Nations is claiming to own the science. They've partnered with big tech platforms like Google. They're pouring vast quantities of money into globalist media outlets to ensure their version of the science is the one that we get to read. And this statement that he shares here is from a global communications representative from the UN, Melissa Fleming, who spoke on the World Economic Forum disinformation panel back on September 28th. A transcript of that clip reads... We partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change at the top of your search, you'll see all kinds of UN resources. Resources, rather. We started this partnership and we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted information right at the top. We are becoming much more proactive. We own the science and we think that the world should know it and the platforms themselves also do. But again, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active. Oh, my word. In fact, let me just play for you. This is this is just like a 42-second clip, so I want you to understand. I'm not making this up, but this is what she has to say. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science and we think that the world, you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in. We own the science. I know. There's... <laughs> The noive! The noive of that dame! Anyway, uh, Dr. Malone says, the thing is, when you listen to the full panel discussion, the UN speaker, Ms. Fleming, isn't just saying that the UN is censoring speech on climate change. She also suggests the UN with the World Economic Forum is censoring many scientific discussions, such as the topic of COVID-19. And the UN's in the process of setting up the tools to censor all misinformation that the UN deems unhelpful for what it calls a stable, peaceful, 
Harmonious and United World. Unreal. I hope you'll check out the article. There's a lot more to it, but uh, holy smokes. That's, uh, that is hubris right there. <laughs> we own the science. So apparently they own Dr. Fauci too. Now, here's another story that I think is worthy of some attention. You and I probably recognize at some level that growing your own garden has a lot of benefits. Boy, this year, uh, man, my, my wife and I uh, were given some space to garden at her parents' home, which is nearby. And, and it's a pretty good sized space. It's 50 by probably 30 feet. It's a big garden. And when we first started, I was like, man, I don't know. We had a freeze. We had a huge freak windstorm that killed off our tomatoes and pepper plants. And I was like, there's just, you know, every strike against us seemed to happen. But then through the summer, I have watched as this garden has produced and we have produced and it continues to produce more food than we can accommodate. It's really remarkable. And I'm not just talking, it's more zucchinis than you've ever seen. There's that. But uh, it's, it's just amazing. And it gives you a sense of personal self-reliance, especially when you're able to can and preserve, you know, the food that you're growing. So growing a garden has benefits. Self-reliance is a big one of them. Now I want you to ask yourself, why would the USDA be asking people to register their vegetable gardens for a national database? I picked this one up off Activist Post, and uh, Matt Agarist is the one who, who wrote the article. But uh, the at USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, is now renewing its push for the People's Garden Initiative, which includes registering vegetable gardens nationwide. You know, I'm trying not to read too much into it, but that just seems really unusual and maybe like not such a great idea. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, says, hey, we encourage existing gardens and new gardens, you know, to join the system. But he says local gardens across the country share the USDA's goals of building more diversified and resilient local food systems, empowering communities to come together around expanding access to healthy food, addressing climate change and advancing equity. Oh, is that what that's all about? Hmm. But it's, it's important that uh, the USDA, you know, that they do not involve themselves with keeping Americans healthy. And he gives some very solid examples in this article about uh, what that means. So skepticism over a national garden database run by this organization, it's entirely warranted. And especially as the world is teetering on the verge of nuclear war and perhaps economic collapse, you need to remember that in times of war and economic downturns, food is actually more valuable than gold. So think twice before you uh, go and register this with uh, the federal government, you know, to, to help them in whatever their quest is. Ain't nobody's business but yours. I hate to, I hate to sound like, wow, you sound really kind of paranoid. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't trust the government. Oh, really? Yeah. Isn't that strange? I wonder what could have happened in the last three years that would have caused my trust for government to, to slip somehow. Hmm. I can't imagine. Anyway, moving on. One final note, and that is uh, free speech on modern higher education campuses. Now, I'm going to suggest that is a rare thing. How rare? Let me put it this way. Encountering authentic free speech on a modern college or university campus these days is about as likely as you capturing video on your cell phone of Bigfoot water skiing behind the Loch Ness Monster. Got a great article here from Charles Lipson, and this is from Real Clear Wire about restoring free speech at our universities. 
He says, now that the autumn semester is underway, it's worth asking whether students have a chance to participate in free and open debate. Well, the short answer is no, they don't. They don't have a chance to explore unpopular ideas and controversial opinions. In fact, they're protected from ideas that might make them uncomfortable. And what's being stifled here is more than speech. It's their education and with it, their preparation to live in a tolerant society where fellow citizens hold different points of view. As Hannah Holborn Gray, one of America's finest university presidents, once observed, education should not be intended to make people comfortable. It is meant to make them think. Universities should be expected to provide the conditions in which, within which hard thought and therefore strong disagreement, independent judgment, and the questioning of stubborn assumptions can flourish in an environment of the greatest freedom. What a great quote. And she was right, by the way. Unfortunately, very few universities today follow Gray's advice, and they bear a heavy responsibility for their failure. Promoting free discourse is central to their mission, so it's not only the best way to educate students, it's also the best way to encourage innovative research and to model serious engagement with differing views of beleaguered value in today's Western societies. And from here, Charles uh, Lipson goes into talking about how uh, you know, students don't need to be re- don't need to be reminded all the time how intolerant their campuses are. They already know. If they hold unpopular opinions, they keep their heads down. If they hold dominant views, well, they're, they're too eager to shame those who differ rather than debate them. In fact, there are whole departments that display this intolerance. And it's a poisonous atmosphere. And there's actually a lot of good data out there on speech suppression. So we offer some ideas about uh, encouraging free speech on campus. Well worth your time to, uh, to examine this for yourself. I have to laugh. Somebody shared uh, a tweet and a response from, I guess it's the Brigham Young University, what is it, the, the Office of Belonging. I guess that would cover, you know, the inclusivity. And, uh, you know, the Office of Belonging is here to ensure that uh, we are protecting our students and making sure that they have a good experience on campus. To which someone responded, oh, by the way, does that include conservative students who are being attacked by the woke? Are you standing up for them and making sure they feel like they belong too? I know. It was like, whoo. <laughs> that was salty. It also has a, quite a ring of truth to it as well. Check out my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Feel free to subscribe if you like. And thanks again for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.